Hello and welcome to the Black Mentors Podcast, where we ask, listen, learn, and invest in the knowledge and truths of black males from all socioeconomic backgrounds. We also advocate for positive images and narratives of black males in all forms of media. I'm your host, Rodney Harmon, and we are joined today by our guest, Chris Bush. Chris recently received his PhD in criminal justice from Walburn University. Prior to his PhD, Chris finished his undergraduate and his master's at Washburn University. We're going to talk today to Chris about how to get his PhD, what, what, why did he choose to go into criminal justice, and find out a little bit more about him. Welcome, Chris. All right. Thank you for having me. Thank you for being here and sharing your story with our uh, listeners. Okay, Chris, uh, tell us a little bit about yourself. All right, so as you know, my name is Chris Bush. Um, I'm originally from uh, Mississippi. We moved here to Topeka um, at, when I was age six. Um, so I still make for sure that um, even though I was raised in Topeka pretty much, that I reference uh, Mississippi because I still have a great memory of my time being in Mississippi um, up until the age six. Um, <clears throat> after coming to Topeka, just app- attended all Topeka public schools. Um, ran track um, throughout my um, younger years, ended up getting a track scholarship where I went on to uh, Coffeyville Community College, um, ran there for two years, uh, tore my hamstring, so was no longer um, able to run um, after that. So then came back to Topeka, um, started working full-time. Um, and that, While working full-time, I was going to college um, full-time as well at Washburn, and that's where I received my undergrad um, in human services, uh, mental health, and developmental disabilities. Um, and during that short time, I took a few different jobs um, <clears throat> and worked in the capacity of uh, with Heartland Works um, around employment and training. And then I was selected to um, with six individuals for the state of Kansas to travel to D.C. for a program called Offender Reentry. Um, and from that, um, that's what sparked my interest in um, criminal justice. Okay. Um, so during that time, then came back and um, attended Washburn uh, for my master's. Okay. All right. Now, you say you attended school here. Uh, what grade school and middle school did you go to? So the, the grade school is no longer open. Um, okay. It was Belvar over um, on the east side by Pine Ridge. Uh, middle school, Eisenhower, um, which is still up and running. Uh, my wife um, is an educator over there. Okay. And in high school, I attended um, and graduated from Highland Park High School. Okay. All right. And what year did you graduate high school? 1993. 1993. Yes. All right. All right. Why, why uh, criminal justice? Why, why you choose that field? So when I was selected, um, being one of the six to attend Washington, D.C. with the Offender Workforce Development uh, specialist program through Department of Justice um, in the National Institution of Corrections. I uh, went through a, a really fast-paced um, course um, that was usually, was about a about an 18-month course crushed down into, I mean, narrowed down into about a three-month um, course. So going through that and just knowing that I had the, the ability to be able to learn at that capacity and then was encouraged by uh, some colleagues at that time that was our mentors and um, leading us to be um, certified as an offender workforce development specialist um, encouraged me to um, go into uh, criminal justice. So I did, um, and uh, a year and a half later graduated, and um, among doing that, um, encountered some other individuals who encouraged me then to apply for the FBI. Um, so um, I had that great opportunity being selected um, out of uh, a database of 5,000 was what I was informed. Only 15 was selected. That was back in 2008. Um, so that was really um, moving for me because being a young black male um, coming from the east side and, um, and from what I knew that it was just so many different steps of being selected to the FBI, I was already pushing myself away um, based on height, um, yes. what I was informed. Um, Background, of course, they they look they do a very intensive background search once you move on through. So those were like some of the factors that were like holding me back. Um, but when I got selected, um, and I was in a room of 15 individuals, um, one thing that stood out, um, and this is another piece that um, kind of pushed me towards the field of criminal justice as well. Um, 
out of the 15, 14 of those individuals, when they asked what was their interest uh, or why was they interested and, um, and what were their connections, um, a lot of them pretty much had some of the same interests of just being involved in their younger years. But all the, the other 14 either had a, a grandparent, an uncle, or auntie who worked in the CIA, um, previously FBI, um, any other capacity at the very high level. So when they got yeah. to me, um, I told them I had no connection. I just submitted an application. Um, it was off of prayer as well. Um, and just some through some some individuals that encouraged me um, also. But other than that, I told them that I just had a strong interest at a young age reading Encyclopedia Brown. Um, so everybody turned around, looked and smiled and yeah. were like, you made it through that way. So um, unfortunately, I didn't um, decide to go on further with that, um, just based on some of the recommendations during that time, having two young kids and uh, being informed that um, they make the selection of where you're going to go for the next 12 years. So. Um, just getting to phase one was uh, enough to, to excite me. Yes. Okay. Uh, like you said, when you were in that room and, and you understood and you found out the other 14 people had connections already, um, did that kind of throw you off as far as, you know, did it, did it make a decision did, or did it have an effect on the decision you made it besides just your family about, whether or not you was going to make it any further than that? Kind of. Um, just because of, you, you, you know how networking works. Yes. And pretty much already have a shoe in the door. Yes. Um, but then when the um, agent spoke and said that um, out of the 15 of you, only, only one or two of you will pass the first test. And if you're truly serious, uh, you'll come back and you'll retake the test and you should move on to phase two. Um, and he gave us um, his personal phone number and said, stay in touch. And so after I got that communication from him, I knew then that he was doing everything in his power um, to keep me very um, motivated to yes. go back if I didn't pass um, and then come back for the second part of the test or retake of the test and then move on to phase two. Okay. Now, how, how how did that weigh on your system? Did you check with your family before you decided not to go on, or did you just look at it and, and took a stance as, okay, well, I really don't want to move my family any and everywhere that the Bureau wants me to go? Yes, yeah, so um, I did speak with my wife um, at that time, and, um, and she was very supportive, um, just knowing that I, I was just moved by just getting to uh, phase one um, out of that database um, that they stated that was around two to five thousand individuals and I was selected um, so um, yeah talked to them thought about it uh, my kids were very young at that time uh, and just knowing that um, you wouldn't be nowhere within two states of where you lived um, or during those 12 years and after that you can make a selection and most likely could have been in Kansas City office okay so you're family man, big yes, time family man. Definitely family man. Okay, because you know how they, uh, and I say that because we get portrayed as not being family men, especially black men, not being family, not making a decision on our own, or not really being there with our kids and making decisions with our kids and stuff. Right. So not only are you a family man with your kids, but you wanted to stay close to home in the Topeka area or the the Kansas area also. Yes, and you know a lot of people have their reservations about Topeka. Um, one being small, not a lot of things to do, and um, and thinking on just being a family man, and and thinking of other larger cities, and you know what can be contributing factors to engage youth in a different direction. Although I know that I would have had my footprint um, engaged with my my two sons, but um, I know what Topeka did for me as a young man, um, where I, there was a there was trouble, but um, you had to go really looking for trouble. Um, it was there, but mm -hmm. um, it just didn't creep up on you um, as if it would in Chicago or a larger city. So um, I liked the environment. Um, I knew a lot of people were here. My uh, my family was here, and it just had that support um, from my family, and then also friends, and then um, our church family as well. Okay. All right. Now we're going to back up here a little bit and, and go back to 
uh, when you got your uh, when you when you ran track for the college, what what did it take you to get you a scholarship to get into you know run track? It took dedication. It took motivation and um, determination. Uh, from a young age, I already knew that I wanted to um, go to college. Um, and as young men, um, we often um, connect ourselves with sports um, and, you know, hey, I'm going to get into the NFL and buy my mother a home. Um, so it was just a goal of mine from a very young age. And I have a picture at my home from when I left Mississippi. It was preschool and I had a, um, a graduation suit on and I had always looked at that um, throughout my years and even now um, as I will be graduating July 18th. It's just been an inspiration just to look at that picture to know that there's a process that I can continue to go through to educate myself, keep myself informed. Um, but the the track thing, I just knew um, at a young age, again, around six and seven, I was competing, running against individuals that were 14, 15 years of age. I was outrunning them at that time, and I just knew then and from other people who um, knew that I had a gift or a talent and track that I uh, knew that I would go pretty far um, in track. However, my uh, goal was uh, football until reality set in. Okay. And what position play in football? Uh, I played running back, um, and uh, on defense, I was a defensive back. Okay. Which one did you prefer? Running back because right. of my track speed. All right. Yes. Okay. All right. What it, What would be your ideal job in the criminal justice field? I have always been fascinated by um, investigating. Um, so any level of criminal investigation um, will be my ideal job in um, the criminal justice field now in conjunction with um, being an instructor, uh, which I'm currently um, doing um, now as an adjunct professor um, teaching criminal investigations and law enforcement operations as well with Allen County Community College. Okay. All right. Now, uh, you say investigations would be your thing. You uh, did it, your dissertation on um, the police force, am I correct? Or how did, what, what was your dissertation on? So um, my topic um, just in general was um, around police body-worn cameras, okay. the delayed video release, um, the impact that it has on the family members and also the community as a whole. Okay, could you explain a little bit of that? What 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 research did you have to do, and what what was the outcome of your research? So um, so it took over three about three years. Um, so a lot of literature review, um, going through um, a lot of topics emerged, um, and what they talk about is the missing gap. What wasn't there was any information that talked about the police body-worn cameras, delayed video release. There was a lot of information around police body-worn cameras, like the policies and so forth, and why did they implement them for police. Um, but none of the data talked about um, the, the delay um, when it's released and how it impacts the family members. So um, that drew my interest real quick. And so, and just with all the, the um, stories going on during that time while I was working on my research and previously. So pulling that data, um, going back and looking at Laquan McDonald and Sylvan Smith, um, the Dominique White case, but several other cases that were, um, had already happened and going back and just reading how those families were impacted and then also reading articles, that, which was my secondary data of what the community was saying, how it was impacting them. So the purpose of it was was to enlighten the community um, and law enforcement how it impacts the family member when there's such a long delay, especially when there's no policy. Um, here in Topeka, um, there was no true policy at the time when Dominique White got um, killed um, or shot by an officer at that time. And during that time, they put together a policy but it was several weeks later before the father was able to review um, the video. So enlightening the community that there's different policies um, throughout the country um, where um, law enforcement officers set their own um, agenda in regards to 
releasing the, the body the body worn camera along with the you know with, uh, legislation as well but there's different policies so if you look at Kansas versus Oklahoma or Oklahoma versus Florida you will see the difference of the release of video which I was surprised just the other day with the individual who got killed in Atlanta that video was released the next day and that's rare you don't see that yeah. um, but they're starting now to see the impact and what it causes um, with the community when individuals are holding, well, when law enforcement holds onto that video. Okay. All right. Um, well, stating that, do you think there should be a federal law that govern police cameras? Yes, based body? on my research and the data, people believe that there should be a uniform policy around releasing police body worn camera video. And individuals understanding, we know that there is an investigation going on, and that's where the loophole comes um, because. If the investigation takes three months, that video can be held on um, pretty much during that time. So what is an appropriate um, estimate of an investigation? Um, you can't put a deadline on it, but how could you be cordial enough, at least is what they're saying to the family member, not really the public, even though the public will want to know as well, but yeah. at least being courteous to the family member to be able to show them the video within a reasonable time. And reasonable time from my data um, from the individuals um, stated within two days um, would be an appropriate time um, for the family to be able to review the video. Okay, all right. Now what about, um, do you think it should be a federal policy that uh, every officer wears a, a body cam? Yes. Okay. And. Um, and there, there, there's um, language around that already when they're, uh, they are trying to um, enforce that um, nationwide. Uh, I believe most states and um, officers are wearing. What you will hear is they also have the policy to turn on and off. Yes. And that's a discretion of the officer, a discretion of the um, law enforcement based on whatever state, again. Yeah, um, so, the but actual again, department. Yes, but okay. the... The communication is that they're trying to get it where there's no reason why you should turn um, the uh, body-worn camera off. Okay. All right. Okay. What what drives your success in uh, this field? So, social change. Uh, okay. Being able to make an impact, um, even if it's just in, in Topeka, where it saturates throughout the, the state and then on to the next states where... Um, social change around, um, you know, the, the, the social injustice, um, you know, the police brutality. Um, how do you bridge the gap? And we hear bridge the gap a lot of, since we were, I mean, probably since you were young as well. Yes. Um, but sometimes it just become a statement. But like, what is bridging the gap? Um, a lot of community policing from the data that I also uh, received is that individuals said it's so old, there's nothing new. Yes. Um, that's bringing individuals together um, with police and community. And um, a lot of that came back also stating that they believe that the officers should come from the community and not only come from the community, but live in the community. So those are ways of being able to, to, to establish bridging, bridging the gap. Okay. Um, and that's my, my take too, as far as uh, I believe that officers need to live in the city and, or or county in which they patrol right you know because they're if they if they don't have what they call it a uh, skin in the game then there's no reason for me to actually give a hundred percent patrolling this area when I know I could go an hour away to my own town right and that same stuff ain't happening right you know uh all right. What uh what is your most memorable memory of choosing the criminal justice system besides the fact that you probably related on earlier is just knowing that you were one in 15 people of the 2 to 5,000 people chosen to go and be represented in front of the FBI. I would say uh, the most memorable moment um would have been again when I was selected uh, one of the 6 um, to travel to D.C. to um, bring back the um, reentry program um, with the OWDS program. So 
helping offenders um, when they get out of prison, how do they reenter? Um, so that was another contributing factor for me to go back and uh, pursue my, my master's in criminal justice. And then that was around, you know, still social change, just being able to enlighten not only the, the offenders, because uh, we were training these individuals and these individuals still get trained today. Um, and when they come out, they're ready, most of them, a uh, majority of them. Um, but if the employers are not informed and educated and opening doors for these individuals to come in, then they are setting back and they feel that there is no one, you know, to have their best interest. And that's where you hear the um, individuals returning back to um, prison and so forth. So just informing and educating the community as well and, and employers. Okay. All right. Uh, my personal background is uh, law enforcement. And uh, I hear you there on the, uh, the inmate or convict or however you want to say it, uh, coming out of prison. I, I know there's a lot that the state is different than the federal. Mm-hmm. Then the juvenile is different than the state. Yes. So like you said, there needs to be uh, some type of training and some type of federal, you know, and, and we say keep saying, I keep saying federal because there has to be a uniform decision on trying to get these people jobs, you know, right. trying to get them jobs, trying to get them, uh, know a lot of problems they come out with. Some of them don't have no clothes to come home with. Right. You know, depending on how long they've been in there. Some right. of them don't have a registered home. Right. You know, so someone might have to go to the homeless shelter mm-hmm. or, or, or the halfway house with the federal. Right. You know. Right. And, and that, that's what drove me. Um, also during that time, I began writing a book, um, how to stop throwing strikes to individuals with a criminal history. Okay. Um, and it was for employers. And so what I talked about is, you know, you're throwing fast pitches, you're throwing knuckleballs, you're throwing curveballs, and they're not able to hit the ball just to get on first base. Yeah. So um, I said, so throw a slow pitch so individuals can have that opportunity for they can at least arrive on first base and then just start making that move um, as they start to proceed, um, you know, regaining themselves back into the community and um, and so forth with their education and, and employment. Okay. All right. What uh, what would be a recommendation? What are the two top recommendations that you would tell an employer if you went in and did a consultation with them as far as trying to hire people coming out of prison? I would recommend that they um, get to know the individual during the, the short time or um, the allotted time that they're meeting with the individual, um, find out what the, the crime was. Um, a lot of times when we hear a crime, we group that into what we know and leave it as that with someone else. I'll give you an example. Um, an individual was charged with arson, felony arson. And so on his, on his application and when the background checks were done that's all they seen yes um he never allowed himself to be able to get an opportunity to explain what that arson was um he was an older man fell asleep drunk with the candle on and set the uh, an apartment building on fire yeah had previous run-ins but they linked him with an ar- felony arson um setting the building on fire so just employers getting to know what what is your crime? Yes. Um, another example: an individual was charged with uh, kidnapping. Um, went to go pick their son up from the daycare, but due to um, the wife and custodial, and, yes, yeah. um, just went. So yeah. then the charge, and then that was the case. So yeah, I went to go pick up my son, or I went to go pick up my daughter, but they charged me with kidnapping and so forth. So just for employers to be able to get a chance to listen and understand um, what the crime is. It may not fit to what you know and what you hear on a bigger scale um, until you hit that individual out and um, give them the opportunity. Okay. Now, I know there was a push at one time about taking the box off of the application that said uh, whether or not they had been an inmate. Or yes. Is that? I haven't heard any more, okay. too much more about that either, but there was a push um, several years ago for that. Okay, because that's, that's the first strike that they get. Yes. You know. 
That's yes. the first strike that they get when they got to mark that box on that application. Yes. You know, so, all right. How do you uh, stay balanced between work, school, and family? Like I said, I'm, I'm a family person, so being home, watching movies, um, always um, having conversations with my wife, um, what's going on in the world, um, church, um, school um, with my sons, um, staying actively involved um, with their academics, uh, their sports, um, reading, uh, do a lot of walking, and um, that's 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 about it. And just to make for sure that I'm balancing it in an, in, in an appropriate way, where it's not taking all my time away from home. Because um, during my PhD, you know, it got really busy. Yeah. Um, but I set a schedule uh, that I stuck to for those three years, and it allowed me to be able to find my time period during the weekends and you know, also during the evenings if needed um, to be with my family. Okay. All right. Now, I know uh, during that time you lost, you. even though you have a schedule, you st still think sometimes that you just didn't spend enough time. Yes. You know, and enough, you know. How did you balance that when, you know, you knew you had to study, but your kid just needed that little extra time, you know? So uh, when, when, I, when I did study, I would um, try to prepare myself where I was always just a little bit ahead. Okay. So I can afford that time. Like, oh, okay, I can miss Wednesday or I can miss Thursday yes. um, or a couple hours or whatever. So I was just a little bit ahead. And if I wasn't, um, it wasn't the end of the world either because I had already made a commitment. Um, for me, have already obtaining my, my, my master's and my bachelor at the time and my kids were already young. Um, so I, I felt that I had met my goals and the PhD was just something that uh, I had set a goal for myself. And mm -hmm. so my priority was my kids, school come first, everything, um, even the family time. So this was, just, this was just something that I had put out for myself to obtain. And I knew that I was gonna get there, but I didn't want anything, I didn't want that to be the distraction where I was blinded, where I wasn't seeing everything else. Okay, all right. So if you, so with that, you're saying if you got a schedule of blocked out from five to six every day, you know, to study, and it comes down to where like one or two of those days during the week that there's nothing scheduled after six o'clock because, so you're just going to study up a little bit extra so that you could, you know, have yes. that extra time spent or, yes. you know, if you need to, like you said. Yes. Okay. Um, looking back, what do you think you wish, or looking back, what's one thing you wish you knew about the criminal justice system before you start studying? I would say, um, and this is a question that I also ask my students, um, during the course as well is the the structure of how the criminal justice system have uh, been formulated and how it took care of its needs meaning that individuals that are aligned in the criminal justice field um, and if there's policies and if there's procedures and there's practices um, that was implemented to be followed um, but moving through the years that could be shifted and molded to fit those disciplines that are connected with each other so scratching your back and you scratch my back so and this is where you hear the term um, the broken criminal justice system okay. so if, if that would have been something I would have knew coming in uh, I think my focus would have probably been a little bit more different, but um, even though it's a, a hot topic now, and that's what you hear in criminal justice reform, is that it's still something that could be addressed. Okay. All right. Now, breaking down criminal justice reform, you always hear, lately we're hearing a lot about um, defund the police, 
could you explain what a person on the street here defunded the police and what a possible uh, police department think they mean by defunding the police? So this being uh, a new uh, terminology um, in the last few weeks, I believe a person on the street, when they hear defund, uh, they immediately be- think that um, it's totally wiping away um, the police department or law enforcement. Yeah. And um, I think some officers as well, um, if they're not as informed or educated um, around the, the terminology defund, that they also take on the, the, the communication that's going out there. Uh, we're about to be let go. Yeah. Um, but for, for most um, that are aware and being informed um, that it's taking away resources um, that are leverages that give them power um, that they abuse um, and put it in a structured environment or with an entity that can oversee and work in collaboration with to be able to help um, what criminal justice should look like or the law enforcement's work should look like or what people um, have been informed what it should be. Okay. All right. All right. When I was a cop, I used to, there's a thing that people call, there's the law, and then there's the, uh, this word, uh, (laughs) spirit of the law. Okay. And it basically means, and and you break it down to, you know, uh, basically what it, it means. There's a law. Say if you there's a law that you could pull a person over for going over ten miles an hour. But then there's the spirit of the law. Now the spirit of the law, meaning that, yeah, you know you could pull them over for going over ten miles an hour. But how many cars are going over, you know, the speed limit ten miles? Yes. You know. Right. So. With that saying, then there becomes the discretion of the law. In your research, did you come up with was discretion of the law ever brought up in your research? Not a lot of my focus uh, pertain to that um, in regards to the, the body-worn cameras. Um, yes. And I guess I would say a little bit because around community policing, Okay. Yes, um, it did. And it, you know, just talked about, I guess, to put it where individuals can understand is that you can become comfortable enough, again, where you can massage it to, to, to fit in your category of, I have the opportunity, I say opportunity, I have the authority to stop this car if I need yes. to, but I really don't have to. So it's just that discretion. Is it? Is it is it's appropriate, but do I need to? Yeah, um, and so forth. Yes. Okay. So when stats come out, and people look at stats of people getting pulled over and stuff, uh, and how many tickets were written compared to race relations and stuff, uh, there's a lot that comes into that, and a lot is discretion of the law, and that breaks it down to not how many people got tickets, but how many people actually got pulled over and let go without tickets. Right, right. You know, so there's a big difference in the stats, you know. Did yeah. you run into problems when you're trying to pull stats for your discernment? No, but when, when you're doing a literature review, it can be very challenging okay. uh, because it's, you know, you're doing, you know, you're pulling it, you're reading, you're, you're going through. Um, so the, the good thing with, with, with my research, it was a qualitative research opposed to a quantitative so I really didn't have to focus on anything with numbers and so forth so mine was a uh, phenomenological uh, um, qualitative study where I did interviews Um, but but your your comment that you stated it it brings me back to a a memory Uh, while I was attending Washburn and and you talked about how many people were pulled over versus an individual getting a ticket and so forth I recall Two young men, uh, white men, 
um, and they were good friends of mine. Uh, we yeah. were going through class um, at the time at Washburn, and they were talking about how how good a time they had had, a good time that they had that weekend. And one said they was just drunk, just to the point where pretty much crashed his car into the bushes, mm-hmm. and um, an officer pulled up. And so they were talking, so my ears perked up, and I was like, oh, he got arrested. Yeah. And then um, came in and say, hey, I mean, he was sleeping in his car, uh, and he was questioned. And the officer, they looked like you had a lot lot to drink. And he was like, yeah. He said, you wrecked the car. It's not bad. He said, I tell you what, um, I'm going to get you home. You don't do this again. My, my uh, partner is going to drive that car. You get over in the passenger side, and we're going to drive your car home. And so I just like – jumped in and said that, that's yeah. what happened i said did you get a ticket no and i said now um that would have been different for me if that would have been me and um and they they they, they agreed and they said agreed, i could yeah. see that it went that way but um but yeah so that that's what i think about like how many times have that has happened as well um and you know just seeing what we saw last weekend with the individual falling asleep in in his car um in the drive-through um what discretions could have been done there or decisions could have been done there and that's what you keep hearing and and so forth before the incident took place before the the tussle and the and all of that and the shooting yes and you referenced to the one that happened that's the one that's in atlanta yes okay atlanta georgia where the gentleman got shot by a cop yes two times in the back and he ended up passing away right all right what is the single most important reason for your success you know, I wrote this in my dissertation, um, my dedication, my mother. Um, and this is something that I passed on to my sons um, who are academically inclined. Um, <clears throat> when we got here, uh, my mother, uh, coming from Mississippi and, you know, individuals from the South, education was important, um, but it wasn't saturated where they were pushed to go, they were asked to work around the home yeah. and just not having that afforded opportunity to be educated. So my mother stopped um, in her, her junior year. And when we got here, so we started going through the Topeka system, the school system, which was a lot different from you know, living in the country and going yeah. through that school system. And what she shared with me my third grade year, she said, I don't expect you to come home with straight A's and B's. Um, and C's, um, or she said, all I know is that you do not fail, do not flunk. Um, I know that you just need to pass on to the next grade, and I'll help you with what I can, um, but I'm not all educated in some of the things that you will be learning. So I expect that you just go to school, learn, listen, and um, do the best that you can. Do not, you don't have to come home with straight A's and so forth. So that went a long ways with me. It took whatever pressure that I have seen on other students who were straight A students and it became an expectation. So, so I just told my sons, you know, do what you can do your very best. If you know you didn't put the best foot forward, you didn't, your, your C is that person's, I mean, your, your C is that A of what someone else got because you didn't give everything that you can. So from that day forth, is what propelled me to um, make small steps towards success. Um, getting into Boy Scouts, being um, a younger, bro- a little brother to a big brother and a big brother and big sisters program, um, attending different workshops and just hitting those small um, success things that that was asked to do during those times. So that's what uh, got me there. Okay. Now, was your father around? My father was around. Um, he was military and um you know due to um being engaged in war um then he had some setbacks um so not when we moved to topeka um no so but other than being in mississippi and family still seeing him and staying in contact yes okay all right now i say i just asked because my my family from Mississippi, or my mother's family from Mississippi, too. And yeah, she a lot of people in Topeka the, from Mississippi. Yeah. It's, it's, it's she crazy. Did, she did the same thing by dropping out of, you know, dropped out in 11th grade. And mm-hmm. Basically almost had the same talk education-wise right. as she would have most normal black men parents have 
the talk police wise you know right right so right. yeah and and people don't understand when my mom when she dropped out she dropped out she was pregnant with my sister but before that she was working a lot in the cotton fields and people don't understand too. yeah yes. people don't understand they think cotton fields was way oh no that didn't happen that was long <laughs> that was in the 1800s and you know yeah. early 19 no that was my mom was born in 47 yes. Yes. And she was working the cotton fields, yes. you know, and Family people don't well. understand that whole yes. situation. Yes. And I, I think just because of their drive, and th- this is what pushed me as a parent when Yasmin was our family man. As I, like I said, when I, every time I graduated from high school, from college, um, and that's because uh, I put this in my dissertation as well. When I graduated, a part of my mother graduated for me as yes. well. So each step that I made, this was, this was, this was you because what you instilled in me and even though that she never obtained it, I think from what I have obtained, I, I say that it's hers. And and the same thing for my kids. So I grade myself based off of, or my, me and my, my wife as well, of how my sons are doing in school. So yes. I like, okay, because I believe what, what, what I put in to you, that what I see is what we have given so that you can propel again. And that's taking that pressure off and giving that talk, like you said, that your mother gave to you coming from, you know, being young. And that's why I always say that I'm from Mississippi. I just believe yes. that there was just a little bit of that, 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 that mothering and then that, that parenting that my mom got from her years of being in the South um, was instilled in me from her and then also from my aunties and uncles as well. Okay. All right. Is there anywhere, okay. Uh, is there anywhere that our listeners can connect with you online to learn out? to learn more about whether or not they want to get into criminal justice system or, you know, and, and I say that because I've been in the criminal justice system for 30 years oh, before I retired. And there's very few black males in the criminal justice system, you know, but there's even fewer black males with a PhD. I mean, it's, you know. Right. So is there anything that you would tell a young black male that's thinking about going into law enforcement, you know, overall, as far as like his education? I would say to an individual who is inspiring to pursue um, their education in law enforcement or individuals who even being recruited, uh, I, I think it's more um, than just having the, the urge um, to become or work in that field. There's, I'm sure you know as well, you have to be a people person, I believe. Yes. Um, you got to know how to talk to people, um, pulling the other strengths strengths that you have um that crosses over into that work and 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 there's individuals out there and you you see these individuals and you know what you make a great law enforcement officer um you have a great relationship with people you know how to diffuse a situation and these are youth this is when you start looking at these individuals and start um putting that in, in their mind like really like, yes, because at that age, a lot of times they just think of, you know, arrest, mm-hmm. um, you know, the investigations and and so forth. Um, it's it's that connection of being able to talk to people and not only just with the people in the community, but I see how you work well with your peers on the football yeah. team um, or in the classroom. You have a way of engaging them to come back down, um, even though you all are in the same team and. Um, it, it impacts you, but you letting them know, hey, this is how I believe that we should do things. You will be a great asset um, to working in the law enforcement, especially um, to our community here in Topeka or wherever that individual is, um, being a black male um, and so forth. So that's what I would, would encourage and, and suggest to young people. Okay. All right. Now we're going to go back to some family questions. All righty. Being a family man, uh, how would your wife describe you? She would describe me as um, quiet, um, tend to 
like to be more um, in a smaller setting. Um, but she would say that I'm up to be, you know, engaged in a, in a, in a larger family um, events, but um, more quiet, um, more of an individual that seems to stay more in the back, um, but still can make an impact from the back um, with my voice. Um, very energetic, very creative. Um, and um, I know that she would say that I'm a, I'm a great father. Okay. And um, husband as well. All right. Now, you say you uh, like to stay in the back, and, you know, that's uh, kind of a bit like how we met was we met at uh, one of the protests. Right. And I seen you up there speaking, and there had to be, what, five, six hundred people there? Yes. So for you to be quiet <laughs> and want to stay in the back, you definitely got out there and, you know, let people know what your dissertation was about and let people know who you are. And, you know, is, it, is that a difference in the fact that you really felt strong about that situation? Or is it more of a, like you said, you could come out of the back when you want, you know, and, and show your support for stuff? So I would say both. Okay. It was a buildup. And I knew that based on what I just did a research on that was okay. talking about community policing and policies and procedures and uh, body worn cameras that um, and I couldn't set back. And knowing that there were individuals there that knew um, that I conducted this research um, and there were some um, individuals that reached out to me to be participants. So I just knew that I had to at that time okay. um, do it. Um, but also with that, I would say that it, 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 it took for me to build up um, exercising that before I got to where I was at, walking it through my head. Okay. Uh, I wrote a book called Crossing Over from Your Personal Barriers. Okay. And that was one of my personal barriers. It was struggling um, how to come from the back and emerge and speak um, where I leaving where I'm not just leaving a place and not being heard. So in what the way that I have built on from that is from what you just stated to me, I had often heard uh, when I tell people uh, I was very shy. I'm still shy. Um, it takes me some time to get up in front of people to be able to talk. And they're like, well, sound like you've been doing it for years or you seem like you didn't have a problem with it. It seemed like you were very engaged or you have people. Yeah. So when I hear that, it's almost like a, a, a a positive that feeds me to know okay i know i can do this you when it comes it. that time so yeah so um yeah and that's what drove me to the to the front that day okay let's talk about this book of yours now that you brought it up and then i get back to the other question i was going all right you however know, we want to do it yeah, yeah. Open, so. um tell us a little bit about the book you the title again and then where you can find it and okay what what spurred that so the title is crossing over from your personal barriers okay um and what and you can find it um, on Amazon. Uh, so what spurred that was while working um, in a capacity with offenders, I had often uh, given just short messages um, real quick. And then someone would say, where'd you get that from? Oh, I just made it up. And then it kept happening. And then someone would say, hey, you, sh you should write that down. And I was like, all right. Then I had to ask myself, like, where did I get that from? So I go back and write it down. And it was my own. Um, motivational, inspirational quotes, and um, and, that, and that's where that came from. And I share a story because it, it's a hundred quotes, and then it has like a little bit more substance to it, far as in a paragraph that follows the quote. I, I wrote the hundred quotes in forty minutes. Um, okay. Yes. Then I went back and then finished the um, the book by within three weeks, and then following that, of course, the the editing and going back and forth. Um, with the self-publishing place and and so forth but it was a motivational inspirational book um, first to individuals who had a, a criminal history in youth and then by the time I got done I noticed that it was a, a motivational inspirational book for anyone to read and I'll give you an example um, you heard me talking about me visualizing or exercising uh, myself going through walking to that podium talking in front of individuals so i tell individuals often we put ourselves out before we even engage into doing something yeah. so 
one of the things I write, I said, uh, if you if picture the picture yourself climbing the ladder, so that you can climb the ladder. So if you if you already put in yourself like I can't do that, I'm afraid I can't climb that ladder. Picture yourself that you climbed it, and by the time you get on there and you start climbing it, then it'll feel like I've been here before because you walked yourself through it. So um, it, it's things like that. Um, for instance, another one would be um, if you feel that you're at the end of the line and you're not the leader, just simply turn around. Now you are the leader. Ask those people, get those people to start following you. Then I also talk about um, take time if you are a leader to listen to those who are following because there's things that they have learned where you have not, where you have already went through and obtained either your certification or degree and so forth. Those people coming through after you can provide you with more information and resources as well. Okay. All right. Now you, you say that book is on Amazon? Yes. Okay. All right. Our next interview that we have, we'll talk about how you do the self-publishing. But we'll leave that for okay. episode I'll be, two. I'll be glad to right. talk you through it. Now, um, is there any other book you wrote, you said? So when, when you start writing or you, you feel that you are an author, and what uh-huh. I found out is you start writing a lot and um, you – begin putting you know pen to paper um or typing um now um during the time so yes i started um, a book uh, called the world we are and that book um, was about nine individuals um, that had a diverse background um, and their names spelled out the word diversity so that's why there's nine d-i-v-e-r-s-i-t-y and they didn't know because they were just playing with each other throughout the their young age. And then they realized, um, based on their initials, it spelled out diversity. And all of them were from diverse backgrounds, Hispanic, black, Jamaican, um, and, and, and white, and, and so forth. So that was mm-hmm. one that I started. And then there was another one um, called Timothy Knows. Um, just a um, fiction book where an individual... Um, changed his life that was in a gang um individuals that he were with um decided that he turned out to be um uh, you know working for the police because he got offered a job as a janitor um at the police station um so that was one that i started and then the one that you heard me spoke about earlier was the um, employer's guide how to stop throwing strikes to to offenders okay now is, is the first one that you talked about with the quotes that one's actually out there f- to order. That one's published and okay, is out published. there to order. Now, the yes. other three. Those are ones that I started. Started. Because my head yeah. was just <laughs> going. Yeah. And uh, they, they all three are actually nearly um, done. It's just okay. a matter of me making the edits, going through the process of if okay. I want to self-publish or if I'm going to um, send, it out, send it out to someone to see if they would um, sign me on, which I did get an offer from my my first book with Tate Publishing out of Oklahoma. I uh, just made a decision uh, just based on some of the, the guidelines and the contract mm-hmm. uh, that I didn't want to give my rights away and okay. I wanted to um, own all the rights uh, to the book that I have. Okay. All right. All right. Now, back to the question. You said how your wife would describe you. How would you describe your wife? Uh, Go get her. Um, she's one, uh, I would say she's, she's like the propeller that keeps you moving. If she know that I have came up with something and I got it started and she know it's a good thing. She's one that would be the propeller pushing me to go forward. Um, Hey, no, you you got this, you know, you, you can do this. Uh, and a, a big help that she has been to me. Um, coming from the South, this is what I learned at Washburn um, in my junior, junior comp class. My instructor came to me and said, um, man, the story that you wrote about Christopher Columbus was great. And then she said, she showed me my paper and had all these red marks on it. I was like, wow. And she said, you, you, you write the way you talk. And I was like, excuse me. So I went back and I was like, oh, I said, I never recognized that. And then she, she asked me, do I know why? I said, well, I said, my mother being from the South and all of her sisters, I said, so going home, I, I it's almost like two different languages. Yes. And exactly. then going back to a work environment, talking and listening a certain way. Mm-hmm. And she said she never 
would have imagined that. But that changed her her way of teaching to understand culture. Yeah. And then working with individuals not to, you know, red pin them all the way through mm-hmm. and and flunk them. So um so a big help for me has been my wife. She would go back and like, let me read what you already put out there. She yeah. like make the changes. She's a very good writer um, or a gr- grammatical person. Yes. I'm a good writer because um, yeah. you got to be creative to write. So I can do that yes. off the top of my head. But other than that, man, yes, she's just a, she's a go getter. Um, also been a big influence um, for me. Um, and then in my kids, um, just things that she had set forth for us with goals. Um, one that I'll share with um, she made the commitment with more, me and her both going through schools and taking on loans and so forth. She made a commitment, I think, by the time my son was in the fifth grade, who was an inspiring um, aerospace engineer. He's now in his junior year. Um, it will be done in about a year and a half that they will not borrow a penny from student loans. And okay. I had the doubt, like, ah, that could yeah. be a little challenging. <laughs> yeah. But she had already made the commitment that, no, they will not. So to this day, my son is debt free of college tuition um pretty much all it's actually it is paid for it's just the dorms but um he has been able to obtain funds and scholarships um going through where we have not had to ask for any borrowed money and so we know that he will finish without taking any student loans so that's the type of wife that i have just making me believe when it's a little bit cloudy and yes. like pushing me through it and okay it's a blessing man Blessing. Thank you. All right. Close out question. One I ask everyone is if you could put a billboard up in any city, where would you put it and what would it say? I'll put it on the side where individuals. I grew up like myself on the east side who at a young age already told that it would be hard for them to make it. It's going to be a struggle for you. It's going to be a challenge for you to make it. Um, and where those individuals then just put up that wall where they can't see any further. And there's three passages that I would put on that billboard. And these are the three things that helped me. Um, throughout my life. Um, The first one, I would say, um, being in a youth choir um, and our our choir director, piano player, at every every, um, session that we ended would have us say, I can do all things through Christ, which strengthens me. And we would say that over and over and over. And um, I didn't understand that until I became a freshman in high school um, but that was something that carried me through and carries me through now. I will put that on there. And then also through my college years um, from two unknown authors, um, the true price of anything is the toil and trouble of acquiring it. And then the next one I would put up there is the essence of failure is learning, growing and succeeding. And that's just letting people know that it won't be easy. You got to go through some toil. You got to go through some trouble of acquiring what you're wanting to accomplish and just telling people it's okay to fail. You're going to struggle um, and you will succeed. Okay. All right. That's good sayings there. Now, is there um, anything that you want our listeners to know that I didn't ask you? Trying to think um, other than just uh, you know, I'm saying my mother, um, you know, being a single mom coming to Topeka, uh, raising me and my sister on our own. Um, I believe she was successful because where we're at today in our lives, um, you know, putting me in programs um, such as the Boy Scouts, Cub Scouts at an early age um, with that structure, uh, connecting me with the uh, Big Brother program to where I still have a relationship with, um, I still call him my big brother and we're now fraternity brothers. Um, so just having that connection, um, with him. And other than that is just, I, I, 
love talking with people and and being a, a inspiration for individuals. Okay. All right. And look more into doing group speech. So, um, yes, I, I was invited back in 2007 um, from right after writing the book as a motivational speaker okay. um, where I spoke in Nebraska uh, to some youth. Again, that was getting out of that shell from that shyness and breaking that barrier. Um, but, yes, that is one of the things um, that I have put down to be a motivational speaker. Co- will continue um, doing motivational speaking. Okay. All right. Okay. Well, that's all for today's episode of Black Mentors, a production of Voiceland Media, LLC. Thanks for listening, and thank you to Chris Bush for joining me today. Make sure you join us here every Wednesday as we ask, listen, learn, and invest in the knowledge and truths of black men from all socioeconomic backgrounds. Make sure you follow us on Facebook and Instagram. Please subscribe to the podcast on anchor.fm, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and Google Podcasts. Stay tuned for a new episode every Wednesday at 12 a.m.